Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I am your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 3, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Another three excellent guests join me this week, so please could you introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Hi, I'm Kath Bishop, and uh, from a sporting connection, I'm probably here because I used to be a rower, an Olympic rower, competed in three games, um, um, won a world championship and an Olympic silver medal. Uh, since then, I've done various other things, including being a diplomat, but now I work as a leadership coach, mainly in the business world, but also um, involved in quite a lot of sporting bodies as well, um, and really interested in the um, culture change and setting up environments where people can succeed whether it's in sport or business or anywhere. Hi there I'm Rachel Hooper um, I am also from I have a rowing background I didn't row anywhere near the level the Kath did but was junior international and um, had then subsequently um, an injury put me into coaching uh, and that's become my passion um, in my life um, particularly coach education and coach development so I had um, 12 years working at UK coaching as a coach education advisor and um, subsequently have worked in uh, school as a head of rowing um, and last week started a new job as the learning education and development manager at British Rowing. Hello there, um, my name is Caitlin Slade. Um, my background is not in rowing or rugby, um, it's in volleyball. I'm, as you can probably hear, I'm from the US. Um, played volleyball at the junior college level or JUCO level as we know it here in the US and then played um, NCAA volleyball. I am now um, currently a second year PhD student at Loughborough University under the supervision of the absolutely fantastic Sophia, Professor Sophia Jowett and Dr. Daniel Rind. Um, my um, research is focused around uh, challenging situations in the coach-athlete relationship how they're perceived and managed, and we're particularly focusing on the deselection in high-performance sport. Fantastic. An absolute pleasure to have you all on. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, speaking to me. Um, yeah, really excited for this one. Just before we get going, a quick reminder to those listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content that we discuss and recommendations to other high-quality content. So uh, we will get straight into it. Kath, we are coming to you. What is it you're going to talk to us about? Yes, so I read an article, it was very recent, the 8th of April, so just a few days ago, in a cycling magazine, so just to prove we're not going to talk about rowing only all night, um, it, so do stay tuned in, it's not all about rowing, uh, and it was about the incredible athlete Sinead Reid, and I can remember watching her doing just, I mean, BMX is such a compelling event to watch. Um, and also having kind of spectacular crashes. But this article in the Ruler Cycling Culture magazine basically describes the roller coaster journey that she's had through her sporting life, um, ending up with a, a kind of huge period um, as an alcoholic or coming out of sport with that, now in a much better place. But really gives you the sort of dark underbelly of what an addiction to success. Um, can look like in places and so it's a great kind of compelling read to make you realize that the life of a high performance athlete is far from straightforward it's not all about glory and winning all the time even though she won um, a, a lot of accolades and a lot of medals along the way had some olympic uh, disappointments 
um, but really, you know, struggled, if you like, because she she didn't develop that life outside of sport. She didn't have that that um, balance, I think, in any way um, and treated pretty brutally at times by her sport as well, discarded when when not wanted anymore. Um, and I just this story for me just sort of summed up, uh, you know, the, the reality, if you like, of um, the, the slightly grim reality of what can happen in high performance sport and, and what really a lot of us should be thinking um, doesn't need to happen. And I think there's a lot that we could all do to create some different environments for athletes to thrive in. That's fascinating. I think a really interesting place to begin in terms of teeing up, I guess, some of your wider work as well around the landscape of success and maybe in a, I, I really, yeah, obsession is probably the right, the right word when it comes to winning. Do you, do you want to kind of maybe just expand a little bit more on your thoughts around that and, and kind of what you've written about and how, how you kind of see the landscape and how we maybe might want to start looking to changing it? Yes, it's a topic I've been watching, thinking about, experiencing, trying to understand for a couple of decades now, really since I came out of the high performance system after 10 years uh, of, of being an Olympic athlete and, and trying to make sense of that incredibly intense experience and some of the things that I'd felt I'd had to learn to be an athlete at that level that I kind of look back and think didn't really help me. So being really miserable if you lose or, you know, that, that sort of no tolerance for anything other than win, win, win. And this sort of mantra of are you a winner or a loser? There was a lot of stuff that, I mean, even towards the end of my career, I was trying to move away from and, and think about things in a very different way. And sports psychology was starting to bring in some different thinking around what performance mindset looks like, where we let go of that obsession, um, looking ahead to the outcome coming first and focus on, you know, being at our best. So I'd already gone through a bit of a transition, but I continued to think about it, um, you know, ever since really, since retiring off to Athens in 2004. And I brought a lot of my experiences, a lot of other stories, uh, a lot of things that others have talked talk to me about and some of the research around psychology principally, um, but also just, you know, just what helps us to thrive from a whole lot of different angles in the book that I brought out last year called The Long Win, The Search for a Better Way to Succeed. And I think we've really got to a point where we have allowed ourselves to define success in a really narrow way, often short-lived, short-term, a moment crossing the line or lifting the trophy that doesn't then connect to what happens thereafter. And, and I just think there's such a better way where that we could set up the systems that would help athletes to have longer careers, to have more fulfilling careers. And I think the thing that shocked me most was, you know, for a while I thought it's just me because I want a silver medal. I'm, I'm left thinking, oh no, I, I didn't win and I'm you know, going to have a life of torment ever after. But when I started meeting gold medal winners who weren't happy, who were unfulfilled, depressed, empty, I thought, my God, this isn't even working for them. You know, we have to think about this in a different way. We have to redefine what success looks like in a way that can be lasting, in a way that will attract the next generation, in a way that spectators want to feel part of. And that's really part of my mission in writing the book, but also a lot of the work that I'm doing um, kind of following that. Amazing. I, I don't know if I've told this story on the pod before, but I'll tell it again. I once uh, got to sit next to Greg Searle coming back from Portugal. So we'd been there on rugby tour and he was there for a rowing um, camp. And this built up to 2012, it must have been. And we just got got chatting away and I just said, was, you know, was all, all that time you spent building up to winning your medal worth it? And he, he just he took this really long pause and looked at me and he's like, hmm, 
no one's ever asked me that before. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's that's quite concerning that you hadn't been asked that. And he, he sat there for a little bit longer. He's like, yeah, if I'm honest, probably not. And then he just kind of sunk into a seat. And I was like, oh, God, like, I've just depressed, like, one of our greatest medal winners in rowing. And I was just like, oh, no. Yeah, so, but it, but absolutely fascinating. I mean, that's the question we should be asking, yeah. isn't it? You know, what what is, the, if you're going to give up everything else and just pursue this sport, um, what, what else can you gain from that? That was a really helpful question to me in my final Olympics. After having two fairly unsuccessful Olympics and thinking, well, I'm probably going to step back, I'm probably going to retire, um, unless I can see there's a different way of doing this. And part of coming back for that third time was the psychologist who we hadn't previously had much access to sports psychology, sort of saying to me, what are you going to gain if you don't win? I thought, my God, that's heresy. We can't talk about not winning. That's terrible. They've they got no chance. Um, and he said, well, no, no, bear with me. And actually, you know, if you look at this rationally, then you've come seventh and ninth. So no one's going to bet the house on you winning. Um, there's a hell of a lot of things you can't control. You might be injured. You might not get selected. Um, you might make a mistake because you're a human being in that race. Somebody will. And you know you've been a committed athlete that hasn't won. You know that committed, devoted, talented people don't always win. So actually, let's go to that place. Let's think about what else could you gain. And of course, for me, that unlocked so, a completely different experience around, you know, just the, the lessons I'd learned that I take with me afterwards, the ability to manage pressure, knowing myself, working in a team, all of these things are so valuable and had lasting value beyond the podium. So whether you're on it or not, what is it that you have of lasting value beyond that moment crossing the line is what's so helpful. And you know what, it helped me to perform as well. So it's not like we're trying to detract from winning, we just, by not focusing on winning, we can focus on other things that will actually help us to optimise the result as well. I think that's the key message, isn't it? Is that it was the conversation, he didn't just stop talking to me then, thankfully, but the, the conversation ended up being actually just how many friends he'd made for life and the experiences, even, yeah. even the, the stuff he loved, you know, being out on the water of a morning and watching the sunrise and those types of things, just, li I guess, living in that moment, which may be the narrative as you said, just just we need to shift that away from it, 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 your happiness or your identity or your success is defined by the place that you finish rather than yeah. you can have an experience. It, it, it's great if you win a medal along the way and you're really successful, wonderful. If you don't, you've still had a wonderful, wonderful opportunity that thousands of people would no doubt give their left arm for. So I, it's that, I guess, maybe perspective. Is it, may, is it too easy Um to lose perspective and be driven into this place of this is the only thing that matters to me. This is the only thing that I've built my identity around. And, and even post, I guess, um, competing, we, you know, the, the, the number of suicides in retired athletes is staggeringly high. And, and you just go, well, actually, what support are we giving them when suddenly they've, they've created their life around, around one thing and, and it's gone? Like, what does that say? Absolutely. And that's something Sinead Reid talks about being dumped off the programme, literally sort of told, sorry, you're not going to make another Olympiad. You've had too many operations on your shoulder. You're out. And, and literally her world fell apart. She crashed a car on the way home. Nobody phoned her to see how she was. I mean, that's 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 just uh, inhuman, you know, discarding people like this who are in a, you know, one moment so valuable, so precious, so incredible, and then literally put onto the uh, onto the rubbish heap. I mean, that's that's never a good way to behave to any human being in any situation. 
Uh, and that in itself shows a real sort of sinister sense of what winning has become associated with, that it's almost okay that that was just how things happen because life's tough and sport is tough. And so it's okay to treat people like that. Well, that doesn't follow. It shouldn't be like that. And, and I think the fact that that bit has become almost normalized, that's by no means, her story is by no means, um, you know, a, a, an isolated one. Um, you know, that again shows that a lot of thinking has followed around this macho narrative of how tough we are and how tough we treat people that somehow gone slightly too far in that direction. Um, I mean, we see with British gymnastics, the frightening stories of, uh, and experiences there. Um, and again, you see, how can this be happening in the pursuit of winning? Well, it, that's just not a good thing to be pursuing if that's one of the costs along the way. And in fact, when you look at a, an example like that, it's going to take that sport a long time to recover, isn't it? So for that next generation, for parents to trust their children going to it and just for spectators to kind of watch and feel they're watching something and somebody who's having a really inspiring experience, not somebody who's been broken and, and, and is broken inside. So I think there's a, a longer term perspective that everyone involved in the sport needs to consider. And we need to help athletes to have that as well. We, we know that if you have an identity beyond sport, that actually helps you to perform uh, because you have almost less pressure in a way. You're, you're not justifying your existence. You know, that shouldn't be right. I can remember the experience of I've sat at the front of the plane having won a medal and sat at the back of the plane when you fly home having not won a medal. You know, and, and it's really miserable. You feel bad enough as it is because you haven't won a medal. And then there's this sort of classification on the way home that these are the, the kind of the important people who are worth more. And they come down the steps at the front and, and you get your photo taken and everyone else skulks off the back. And you feel you couldn't feel any lower at that moment. You think, well, where's this sort of team G spirit now? We win as a team, we lose as a team. No, no, no. Actually, you, you lot literally are made to feel like you're not worth anything. And that's not great because that's not the message we want for young people joining the sport, is it? That's going to lose a lot of people from sport. We're going to lose, um, you know, athletes along the way who don't buy into that mentality as well. And we actually sometimes attract those who are kind of more open to this sort of being addicted to something, being, you know, treated potentially not well along the way. So there are so many things around this that take us from a grassroots level to an elite level as well that need to be really strongly challenged. I also remember um, the 2008 game. So she um, she fell off, didn't she? She went. She was in silver position. Yeah. She gone for a gap. I remember having the conversation afterwards at the time, going, "Would you be calculating in that moment? Would you go silver's good enough because it gets me funding? It gets me a position for the next four years. It it gives me profile. It, it does a lot of these things rather than." gold is the only thing I'm set on and and I, I remember talking to people at the time and they were like no like that you you have to go for it it's gold or nothing and I was like I don't know and I maybe this is why I wasn't an Olympian I'm gonna say it's the only reason why I wasn't because I'd have probably settled for silver I'd have probably gone this is okay home games in four years all those types of things and I don't know. I just wonder what kind of impact that has that it drives. And maybe that's just competitiveness that they're, they're out and out going to compete and never going to be comfortable with, with second. But I do remember that quite vividly having that conversation around what, what do you do in that moment? But, um, yeah. I, I'm not against trying to win. I'm not against trying to push the boundaries of what's possible, but I am against if that doesn't come off and you don't get the medal, you then devaluing that. This is a split second moments here and it could have paid off. And then suddenly she's a hero 
but it didn't pay off and suddenly she's worth nothing and dumped. That's the problem. It's our interpretation of the result. The fact that then you've lost all your funding when you're the same athlete, with the same amount of talent. And in a split second, it ended up in a different result. I mean, in a way, that's the that's the, the excitement of sport. That's, you know, that, that I think you know, I've got no problem with that. And I've got no problem with people saying, do you know, what? I'm going to take a risk. That's how we push boundaries and actually move sport on. But if we then almost punish people because they didn't get the medal, that, that it's not controllable by them. It's dependent on, in this case, someone else's wheel that clipped her and, and sent her flying, then that seems to me to be where we've got it wrong. So it's almost that glorification of gold justifies everything and anything less than gold is, is not worth anything. I think there were great stories, you know, in Olympic finals that involve everyone in that final. And yet we only talk about the winner most of the time. It's the tactics of others that often brings out the best in the person who perhaps does win. And others make really interesting decisions and they have great kind of tactics going on. I mean, it'd be really boring if there's only one person in this race. It's made by having everyone. And yet we then kind of devalue the people because of what happens at the end of the race. Some of the most important stuff, I think, the most interesting stuff is in the middle of a race. We don't yet know the outcome. And we're just watching decision making happening. We're watching reactions. We're watching kind of calculations. But we don't really bother with that. We sort of enjoy it for a moment. And then we just focus on what happens at the end. So it's about shifting our focus to appreciate a kind of richer picture of what happens within the performance of what's going on that all of us can relate to because we're not all winners in life we all come second when we're going for job interviews or third or you know when we go and talk to school assemblies there's this narrative that athletes have of oh it's a little it was a bit hard along the way but here we go I've got the medal as if everything has to end up with a medal well that's just not life it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that for the Olympic athletes. So why do we sort of verify this narrative that means it'll be a bit difficult, but, you know, it'll be OK as long as you try really, really hard and get a medal. And the message is if you don't get a medal, well, you know, either you haven't tried hard enough or, well, you're not really worth anything because this is what we value. And it's that narrative around it that the journalists, the spectators, the commentators, the coaches, you know, all of us play a role in that. But that's really where we need to make the change. Completely agree. I'm wondering, uh, Rachel and Caitlin, what were your experiences as of, as athletes of managing that balance? Did do you think you struck that well, or is that something that was a, a challenge at the time? Like, what what were your thoughts around that? What are maybe some of your strategies that, if you overcame it, that you managed to manage to do that with? Um, I was just shaking my head there. Um, personally, no. <laughs> My whilst you know I didn't compete at, at Olympic level, um, I got into the sport quite young, so I started when I was eleven, and it became my be all and end all, and, and I very much identified as the rower at school and the Rachel the rower, and that's that's what I did, and that's where I succeeded. And um, you know I wasn't particularly academic at the time. Subsequently, I've realised I've got a brain in my head, and have, you know competed in masters a few years ago. Um, but I think that. Um, the, the most challenging bit for me was I was struggling with a back injury sort of in my early 20s and then was pushed and basically told I had two weeks to get better so I could race. Um, it didn't get better. I felt pretty rubbish about things. And I got to a point I thought, you know, I, I can't can't carry on like this. Um, and the, my coach at the time, when I said, you know, I'm going to take a break from rowing, his response was, well, I'll see you around then. And I remember walking to my car and that was it. You know, it was 12 years of my life, which was half of my life at the time. And what do I do now? And I was a student at the time. 
So I went out and drank a lot <laughs> and, and didn't sleep much and studies, you know, suffered as well. And, you know, subsequently I've had real injury problems, not as an athlete, but just as a human being. Uh, you know, I still really struggle with my back now uh, in my 40s. And, and part of that is because I just broke myself. Um, you know, I had eating disorders and all the sorts of things that, that went with that. And I think that it's one of the things that drove me to really want to be, be a good coach so that people wouldn't have experiences that I had or be made to feel the way that I felt people around me had made me feel. And part of that was my personality. Part of it was the people that were around me. But um, that's been one of the real challenges um, as a coach is when I see obsessive athletes who who go but but this is what I want to do I really want to go to the Olympics and and go and just chill out <laughs> you know let's go and do something else what other hobbies can we can we look at you know what other things can can we look at developing in your life and and saying that yes that's that that's a great ambition but how can we do it in a in a really well balanced way uh, and there's there's athletes that I've worked with who um, I, I did a blog about um, there's a picture of, of the Headington School 8 on the start at, at, at Nat Schools and the stroke girls waving and giving a big smile and a thumbs up, you know, really chilled out. And, and yes, biggest. And they, that, they went on to get the break the record. Um, and, and it was an amazing race. I think it was, you know, something like eighth time they'd, they'd won that event. But just and I know that athlete and she's just really well balanced so was going off to do studies and go off to do university and had all those things. But um, you look at the reactions of, like Kath was saying, of people who don't make the podium. But I think one of the classic stories was um, Catherine Granger when she got silver in Beijing compared to when she got silver in Sydney. It's the same colour medal, completely different reaction. You know, I remember watching in 2000, first ever women's olympic medal amazing um no no yeah in sydney um and then athens yeah another silver came as you know Kath. um and then that third silver was just like the world had ended and and there's the extent and, and another one would be somebody like tom daly in 2012 bronze medal jumping in the pool absolutely amazing fantastic and the guy who got silver was heartbroken and it's you know what what's happening with that uh, that coach athlete relationship and how can a coach support an athlete to recognize their that the amazing achievement of even just being there um i remember i ran a marathon it was um 10 years ago this year in fact and it, it's always been on my bucket list um to do it not fast i just wanted to do the london marathon <laughs> and i did it and everybody kept saying oh you know what what was your time what was your time and i thought i don't know <laughs> But I've got a medal and I finished it. <laughs> I don't really care. Um, you know, and I trained all through the winter and I and I did it. And I, I really don't care what time I did it. In. And I think that that was the sort of shift to focus on what you can do and what your small wins are. Um, and, and but 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 my life is and my subsequent life in terms of educating coaches into the impact that they can have on their athletes has really been driven by my experiences as a coach as well as, as an athlete myself. I was just gonna gonna kind of add in there one one of the things that when Catherine Granger was interviewed and talked about the Beijing uh, the third silver well she spoke about it like a bereavement I thought that was really strong language you've won a silver medal um, for the third time and 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 you feel like it feels like bereavement um, you know that that you know that shows doesn't it we something's got out of balance here 
when we know what bereavement really, really is about. Um, that's the experience that she and her crew were having and they all cried on the podium and uh, Annie Vernon, the, the bow girl, kind of wrote a book as well recently, Mind Games. And, you know, she talked about kind of, I think, regrets she would take to the grave. I mean, this is stern stuff, isn't it? This is sport. Um, there can, you know, there can, in any one day, there can only be one winner. You might race it the next day to be someone else. And that's the joy of it, that it's uncertain, it's unpredictable. And we go out there and we do our best and we see what happens. There shouldn't be a shame about not winning. We can't run it unless everybody's in that race. So we are running it, setting people up that they're going to lose. And now we're setting it up that those losers are going to feel lifelong shame. That That's not right, is it? No, I, I think I did talk about this one recently. So there was a, uh, the Bath director of rugby was on interviewed after a game and, and said, you know, we wouldn't come here and expect to win. And, and Twitter just blew up because there were all these fans going, what do you mean you wouldn't expect to win? And, and I'm just like, surely it's one word and it's quite a careful use of the word because if you expect to, then there's a, that, that is literally what you think will happen. And that doesn't mean that you don't want to win. It doesn't mean you're going to try, you're not going to try as hard, but you're sensible enough to realize that on any given day, all things being equal, it's a coin toss. It's a 50% chance of winning and you wouldn't bet your life on a coin toss, would you? So why are we doing the same, having the same attitude to a game or to a race or to any of this stuff? It, yeah, you're right. It just gets so blown out of proportion. It's it's pretty mad, really. But um, that that also shows the the, the big re-education, if you like, that's necessary because we've we've bred spectators on this glory of winning or nothing. It's only the winner that counts, and people take that language into their own lives and they apply it in their you know parenting skills or their touchline touch you know playing kind of five aside football or whatever it is and you know and I see that in the business world as well it's seen as winning is seen as a wholly positive thing if you're trying to win then it doesn't really matter what you're doing along the way because you're trying to win and that allows it and then of course what what starts to get corrupted with that mentality you know we, we know where that can end up um, and so there is a kind of huge need to reset this from quite a young age within our education but of course our education system is built around you know what scores we get what grades we get and our value can often feel coming out of schools that it's according to, you know, how many A stars you've got. Um, and that's, that's massively problematic, I think, in terms of we already have this sense of if you've, you're a success or a failure, which is even more ridiculous when we live in a world where we don't know what the future jobs are going to be. And most things we learn at school these days, you can actually look up on Google now. So the fact you've learned it off by heart is not that important we need very different skills in my leadership work now where we're, you know, a lot of the time leaders are needing to develop much more creativity, the resilience, these, you know, not, not kind of being able to, to recite kings and queens or, or some of the things that we learn at school. And so there's this massive mismatch uh, and a real need to kind of challenge it in, in lots of places. It's funny you say about the school stuff. I was actually clearing out some old school books today from secondary school and just flicking back through those, like my maths book, I'm just like... Pfft yeah no way like there you've got zero chance I would fail that 99 times out of 100 if I had to reset some of those tests now I it might as well be in you know a completely different language but I still manage and and that's the interesting thing isn't it so yeah Caitlin I'm interested in your experiences with the US because I guess maybe from a stereotypical perspective the US would be seen as very much win at all costs and and I definitely 
don't think we we can excuse that in England, but I think we probably, as a generalisation, we would have a perception of the US that that's the case. And I'm wondering whether you think that's justified or not, and, and what your experience of kind of growing up in sport was there. Unfortunately, I, I do think it's justified. And now, obviously, I can only speak from my personal experiences or what I've seen. Um, family members, you know, I had a brother play baseball, um, cousins, close friends play sports. And I think I, I was also that obsessive athlete. And part of that was is my personality. And it's something I'm having to work on now and how I approach my PhD, where it's that 110% or nothing at all. And it, it, you know, it's quite difficult um, to hate that because a part of me is like, well, that's where it's gotten me to here. You know, it, I'm here because of the way I've approached life. Obviously, as you get older and learn, you know, you need to have some balance. Uh, definitely an obsessive athlete. Um, you know, that's my personality, but also some of the sporting environments I was functioning in exacerbated that because I was rewarded for that obsessive personality first one to practice hardest worker you know I would run I would always be the first one done running like that just wasn't an option um, you know team captain things like that coaches didn't have to worry about my grades because I was on it I was going to have perfect grades no matter what and you get rewarded for that type of behavior. So it reinforces that, that behavior of, of course, a coach likes an athlete who the second the game is over, we get on the bus, I'm back in the dorm and I'm already looking at film, counting how many mistakes I made. And next day in practice, I already have a mental list of, I need to work on this, I need to work on that. And, and that's rewarded in that environment. It shows initiative. And in my case, uh, I let that get away from me. And it started to bleed into my personal life, the way I approached school. Anything less than a perfect score on an exam was not good enough. You know, obsessing about written reports to where I would be turning it in at the very last second because I couldn't stop proofreading it. I couldn't stop changing things. And, and you just see how it is bigger than just sport and how you can see it in relationships. I'm, I'm sure in parenting and, and how you manage um, your employees, things like that. And I think the U.S. environment is set up to really celebrate the gold medals, medals or the national championships from such a young age. We have... Um, are university sports, so typically 18 to 22. I don't know if you um, all watched the NCAA men's and women basketball. It's on TV, millions and mi millions of people watch it, they tweet it, they have commentary, they have pundits, and these are amateur 18 to 22 year old, you know, sometimes older athletes. But it starts at quite a young age. In high school, our games were filmed, even when I played at small colleges or universities, our games were filmed and put on the internet. So there it's, and so it's easy to become addicted to that when you're a good athlete and everybody knows that you had a good game or you had good stats, it's addicting. But then the other side of that, when you don't do well, that, that fall is really, really hard. And there's an interesting story. I, I never went to the Olympics and I knew I'd never be, but 
I had my version of the Olympics. When I played um, junior college volleyball or JUCO volleyball, my freshman year, we were undefeated. Um, going into the national championship, we lost. That was our only loss of the season. But for a full year, I defined my self-worth off the fact that I was a team captain and I allowed our team to lose in the final game of the year. It didn't matter that I contributed to a perfect season up to that point. The second we lost that match, nothing mattered. And for a full year, I had this massive chip on my shoulder of anything less than winning this next year is not good enough. Now, next year we did win, but it still wasn't, wasn't good enough. Like Kath was mentioning, it wasn't good enough because the next thing was, well, what's next? Well, I've done my first two years of university, so I needed to get recruited to finish my last two. So the first thing was, you know, I'm on the bus studying for my exam on the way home. I'm trying to send out videos to make sure I, I get recruited to the next level. And so even when I, we finally did reach that goal, it's, it really wasn't enough. The first thing was, okay, what's next? How can I top this? How, how can I beat this feeling? And I never, I don't think I fully sat back and was, was proud of myself of, you know, look, look at what I did. You know, I played with pneumonia. I played with knees that each had a cortisol steroid shot in them. Um, I kept my grades really high, but there, there was none of that pat on the back. It was what's next. This isn't enough. I need more. I need more. I need more. It's an addiction. It definitely is. Go on, Kath, jump in. Yeah, I, I mean, there's so much there that, that really resonates and it's really powerful, powerful story, Caitlin. And I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Johnny Wilkinson and what he's the way he's talked in, in sort of the recent year about he was chasing another cap, chasing the next title. And he thought the next one would make it all right. And and, and he sort of spoke about, you know, the next one, it, the joy would come. And he said, you know, the, it never did. Just, you know, just as Caitlin said there and. And that's really kind of striking, isn't it? There's this, this addictive behavior. Now, you know, if we were discussing addiction in the real world, we don't think that's positive, do we? We, we? we don't sort of say, let's, you know, we want to grow up and be addicted to drugs or cigarettes or something. It's not seen as good. And yet we breed it in a sporting world. We reward it. And that's slightly odd, isn't it? It doesn't kind of make sense to me because it's about winning a medal, it's okay to behave in a way that's really, really destructive. That's exactly what came out of Sinead's story, exactly what Caitlin's describing there. And it also plays to a particular part of our brains, doesn't it? That addictive part where we just want the next one, you get diminishing returns, but you always just want the next hit, the next hit, the next hit. And it's a very kind of, um, you know, short-termist part of our brains and it completely bypasses a different system, if you like, of thinking that we have if we do things that have meaning for us, that have a longer term purpose, where we're doing something that matters beyond a second in time, beyond just crossing the line. And we completely bypass that system that would actually lead to more joy, to more fulfillment. We almost um, you know, think of that as somehow weak. I don't know how we've got to a place where we could think of that as weak, but somehow we have. And yet, we're chasing something that, that we never get uh, in this short-term system. So perspective, one of the things you brought in there early, Phil, is, is, is a key part of this. We play to a part of our brains that's very short-termist um, and, and is never going to be satisfied. 
And we sell somehow this picture of winning, though, as, as being life fulfilling, don't we? We sell this story of Olympic glory, you know, whether it's in, in assemblies or in Hollywood or just, you know, I think quite a lot of the sporting world would sell this story. Do you want this dream? Do you want to be part of this? Oh my God, I'd give everything for that. And yet, what is it that you're actually giving everything for? And that's the thing, isn't it? As soon as it becomes that zero-sum game, we're in real trouble. Do you know, when when winning is the expectation, you don't get joy from winning and anything else is a failure. Well, like, where does that leave you? There, there's literally no margin there either way. Like, it just, it, if there was actually contentment in winning, you could kind of go, it makes sense. But as more and more people keep talking about it, as you said there, that just doesn't happen. But I, I, do, I do wonder whether we've just started to see a little bit of a sea change. And obviously the, the Johnny Wilkinson one was pretty massive. And I, I just think more and more athletes talk in that sense now of it's just around their experience. Um, and, and I love the surfer one. You, you, you hear a lot of surfers and I, I watched endless surf documentaries on Amazon and whatever, because I just love that philosophy around they're searching for perfection. They know it's not real. They, they, they'll ride a wave and it will be euphoric in that moment. And that's amazing. And then they're just going, well, there's probably, a, there's probably a better feeling. And it's not about points or a medal. Yes, they have competitions and they do other stuff, which is great. It's just that sense of adventure. And I think that's what Johnny spoke to really, really nicely. Can we just explore? Can it be an adventure? Can the fun be in the experience itself? And if you get some nice stuff along the way, that's really cool. But it's not, it's not really why you're doing it. And I, I often stand in training and kind of going... Is, is this going to be the perfect training session or the perfect game? If it is, that's incredible. But then I've just moved the bar, so I'm going to keep looking and I'm just going to keep trying to find ways of doing that. And that's, the, that's for me, the piece I love about coaching is you're always trying to tinker. You're always trying to get it right. But actually, it's been really comfortable with the fact that I'm never going to get anywhere near that. And if I do, as I said, I've, I've just moved the bar a little bit further every time. But but having the, the joy and the fun of that as an experience in itself, not not actually what my win-loss ratio is or the team's win-loss ratio at the end of the season. Rachel, jump in. I think, interestingly, this is, a, this is a WhatsApp group conversation I've been having today with a group of coaches that I work with. We had a, a really open conversation last night um, on, on, this is one of those weeks, great great evening conversations on Zoom. Um, and, and it was very much around the fact that successful coaches are deemed to be the ones that have the most Olympic gold medals. Um, that, that's what a good coach is, is seen as in society. And um, th- those coaches are the ones that get employed. They get, they, they get the high profile jobs, um, uh, whether it's at schools, whether it's at, at, within national teams or whatever. Um, and how they do that isn't necessarily even looked at. It's, it's the tally card. Um, and I know that there's jobs that I've been for previously um, where I have a lot more experience. I have a lot more in-depth understanding of coach-athlete relationships and, and the broader changing of cultures within in different sporting environments. But somebody who's won more medals at that schools or, or whatever or as an athlete or as, or as a coach, um, but minimal coaching experience gets the job over me. Um, and that's, that's not my personal story. That's the story of so many fantastic coaches. Um, and, and it's really looking at, at where we can go move away from the ego-driven coach. Um, and personally, my, I have a really strong coaching philosophy that it's about the journey. It's about enjoying learning to make boats go fast. It's enjoying to 
learning about nature it's enjoying being out in all different um weathers all the all the things that go with with our sport and um learning how to become a leader um you know there's somebody ran a 24-hour road just before easter and, and they loved it and it was like wow you've, you've just become an event manager and you're 17 years old and isn't it fantastic and there's all it, it's about developing that whole person um and i think that the more coaches that we have who understand the value of the journey um that the the medals become the the cherry on top they don't become the main focus and and it's the medal is a byproduct of doing things really really well um and and it's all about process process and and if you if you train really well you enjoy your training you've got a really good uh, work-life balance with being an athlete um if you understand and you really want to get that knowledge if you relax well you sleep well you, you spend time with your, the people who love you and who care about you and you've got that great bubble around you actually the byproduct will be that you're a well-balanced human being who's a superb athlete who's got the potential to win an olympic gold medal um and if you don't you've got all that amazing stuff to fall back on um and i think that's the thing it's that void of not having anything to fall back on and falling into a big black hole that so many people do not support athletes to to, to find that. Um, and I find it worrying that that we do have those obsessive people and it's celebrated. Um, it's not seen as something that's, that's not healthy. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, you need a little bit of, you, you definitely need drive and motivation, but it's, it's when it becomes um, unhealthy is when we need to support those athletes to, to understand and step back and be brave enough as well to say, right, let's look at, actually, you need a week away from, from us. You need a week away from the programme to go and concentrate on your studies or go on holiday or anything like that. And I think the pandemic has shown us that actually the way that we've done things in the past isn't necessarily the best way. I've spoken to so many athletes who've gone, actually, I've loved being at home with my family. My, and I've got PBs all around because I've slept well, I've eaten really well, not had to worry about my finances quite so much. There's all that. And, and yes, maybe it's not practical, but but it's really highlighted some amazing things that people just having a calmer existence, um, potentially it's a better way forward for, to, to produce medal winning athletes who are happier. I think it really brings out there the point about what we're looking for from coaches and how we're incentivizing coaches. So if we're employing them because they win medals, they've got no choice than to play the short-term game or they've got no job. So there's a huge part of the change required here that comes from whoever's employing the coaches, the performance director, the NGB, or, or whatever the organization is, to be actually valuing something else, to be valuing the performance and well-being, and to be actually thinking longer term, if you like, about the story an athlete takes from their experience. And we have, I think the, it was uh, 2018 that the BBC did a state of sports survey and found nearly half of elite athletes that they interviewed had ongoing mental health issues after retiring. Well, in my mind, that immediately, that's part of your medal tally. You shouldn't just look at how many gold medals. You should look at what, what happened along the way to those gold medals, because that's part of it. What you created, brilliant, loads of gold medals, but you also created loads of mental health issues. So maybe we didn't quite get it 
right yet and therefore we can make a change but if we only look at the metal table we just carry on in fact we do it even more we do it we, we create an even higher cost so there's this sense of what we're valuing what we're measuring in our tables what our metrics are and how we're then yes in employing praising rewarding coaches it often reminds me of that analogy of climbing everest where lots um everybody focuses on the climb to the peak and more climbers die on the way down than they do on the way up because we're all focusing on the way up um, and, you know, there's just much less kind of attention and focus on how you get down and you've sort of, you've reached it, you've done it, but you've died on the way down. That's kind of, to me, not total success. Um, and, and it's the same principle happening here. Sort of like, yeah, we did it. Great. You won a gold medal, but you've got a lifelong issue now, a mental health problem or an eating disorder. So it's kind of like, well, that's not really success, is it? And that's the driver we need to see those stories, those pictures, which we are starting to hear more of. Um, but we, we, that needs to then change the kind of measuring systems, the performance of which coaches are rated by, for example, or how funding is allocated. All of these big incentives, these big levers, if you like, need to fall in line. And at the moment, it's quite slow to change from the story. There's a sense of we need some cultural change, but the hard levers are a little bit slower to move. Yeah, Kath, I was going to say exactly what she said along the lines of the, you know, we talk about the impact of being in a gold medal focused environment or performance only environment where that's the only thing that matters and the impact that it has on the athlete and their well-being and performance. But it got me thinking, what impact does that have on coaches and their behavior and then how they subsequently treat their athletes? If you're in an environment where your job is, is dependent on whether your team gets X amount of gold medals or X amount of wins, you are now put in an environment where your job is based solely on performance. And there's all these buzzwords going on about athlete centered and you know, well-being and things like that. And they're telling coaches, you know, care for your athletes, be so more supportive. But then they're sending a mixed message when they're just looking at that, that gold tally medal or they're just looking at the wins and losses. We need to create an environment that allows coaches to be caring, to develop those relationships, to not just have to be focused on performance goals to meet, to keep their job. We need to allow coaches the space to do that. And we need to follow up on our buzzwords when we say care for your athletes, develop relationships. And yes, we will factor that into our hiring process and job retention because it sends mixed signals when maybe you are a really caring coach and you're providing support, but because you didn't get X amount of gold medals, that's it. You're out. End of discussion. Uh, and what I find, I guess, even more insane with the whole thing around the Olympics and the medal table is we, we create it like it's not a real thing. It's literally just something that we add up for ourselves to, to make our country look good or whatever. And, and then we find all these other ways of kind of, you know, putting down. Then we do it per population and, and all this other stuff. And it's just like just park it. Like, does it does it really need to exist in the way it does? I'm not convinced, but um I, I, we could talk about this for, for way longer than we've got. So I'm already really conscious of time. So I think we'll kind of park that one there. So um, Rachel, we're going to come to you. And uh, what are you going to talk to us about? 
Yeah, um, it's almost like Kat's read my mind. It's very spooky. <laughs> so um, it's the TED Talk, actually. Uh, there's, a, there's a book linked to it as well. It's called The Happiness Advantage, uh, Linking Positive Brains to Performance. Um, and it's Sean Aker. Um, I don't know if either of you have seen it, but uh, it was, to say life-changing is a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> but I watched this um a few years ago now, uh, my my um, my old line manager, he used to have this, we used to have this joke, Ted in bed, because we used to watch TED Talks. Um, and this this was one that really sort of rang true to me. Um, I've subsequently recently actually been sort of questioning the philosophy behind it, just because of some things which I'll come on to in a minute. But he talks about um, the, the sort of study or the cult of the average and, and how scientists like to put everything into the average when we talk about how fast can a child read? We change it to how fast do the, does the average child read? Um, and, and if we study the average, then we will remain average. And, and actually, we need to look at the outliers and, and study why they perform so highly. Um, and, and it's not just about how we can move people above the average, but how we could sort of move the average up. Um, and it's, it's a psychologist, and I'm, I'm not. Um, so excuse my very basic knowledge of it. Um, but his, his looking was that, that if, when you look at the news, particularly at the moment, everything's very negative and our brain automatically thinks that that is the balance of negative to positive in life, that, that, that that's how it works. So his question is, if we can change the lens of the way that we look at the world and we, the way that we look at reality, um, can it make us happier and can that subsequently lead to greater success? So his story was that he was offered a place at Harvard. Um, he didn't get in originally, but then he got an army scholarship. Um, and he, um, his friends came to see him at Harvard and said, you know, why are there so many unhappy people here at Harvard? You know, it's an amazing experience. You're at Hogwarts, you know, an American version of Hogwarts. And, and, and why, why are people so unhappy? You know, they've, they've been on this amazing high of getting a place. And then automatically, as soon as they're there, it's like we talked about, they've got that place. Well, we're going to move the goalpost now. I need to be the top of my class. OK, I'm not the top of my class. I need to be getting this, this and this. And I need to be best in the whole university or, or however that's going to work so we keep changing that and, and it, the question was that our external world is really influences our happiness levels um and his, his statement was in his research shows that 90 percent of your happiness is predicted by the way that your brain brain actually processes the world um and his um one one of the quotes was if i work harder i'll be more successful and if i'm more successful then i'll be happier um, but it's back to front. It's, it's actually, if you're happier, you'll be more productive and your productivity, and yes, it's from a business point of view, um, will be better. Um, but every time, every time you move the goalposts, um, so that he says that happiness is beyond the cognitive horizon because we keep moving it further away. We can't get our heads around what that actually means and what that looks like. Um, so the big statement on this was, if you can raise somebody's level of positivity in the present, then their brain experiences the happiness advantage. Um, and your brain at positive is more successful. It's much more, um, there's less stress, there's more intelligence and you're creating dopamine and, and all the things that link up with that. So um, the, the thing that came off the back of it was this kind of action plan. And this is what we had a discussion about. We watched it was actually, what can we do on a daily basis to try and change that lens and look at it in a positive way so um, three gratitudes. So thinking about the things that we're grateful for on a daily basis and write them down on a daily basis. 
journaling so writing down all those those things that are going well um random acts of kindness so what we did with with our team was we actually made sure that we said thank you to somebody every day whether it was somebody that we worked with whether it was a friend family anything however mundane it might seem somebody that we've not seen for ages you know thank you for a comment about that or anything like that um and then some meditation and exercise so it, it's that's sort of me putting it it's like a ted talk isn't it you've got a limited amount of time to go rah, rah, rah. um i've not read his book but i really liked the philosophy behind it that if we can find the positives and look for the positives and i guess this comes from from what you were talking about Kath, that the athletes and high performance athletes beat themselves up so much getting to the olympics is an incredible achievement you know, for me, getting to the start line of a marathon was an incredible achievement to actually just be there. And I, I appreciated it because I saw the, that as an achievement. But but why do we keep moving those goal, goalposts? But subsequent to that, recently, I've seen some things around kind of toxic positivity and trying to always force the positives um, that, you know, the kind of um, good vibes only and all those sorts of things that are kind of not accepting that people can feel really rubbish about things and we need to let people feel rubbish about those things as well. Now, the, the TED Talk very much helped me at a time when I was going through career changes and restructures and within our team um, at work, it worked really well because we started to just pick out that, yeah, things were pretty rubbish because we were going through a lot of uncertainty, but... There were great things happening as well. We had great time, you know, I've had a really nice walk with my daughter this evening or, um, you know, I got to see my parents or, or, you know, had a really productive day at work. But equally, I think at the moment, particularly returning to a school in September, there were a lot of really people who were really struggling to find any positives. Um, and I know for me, my big thing, my family live in Australia, my sister lives there, my nieces. I don't know when I'm going to see them. There's no certainty on when I'm going to see them again. Um, and finding the positives in that, which is, oh, isn't technology amazing? It's great that you get to see them and talk to them. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, one of them was eight months old when I last saw her. She's two next week <laughs> and she could be five by the time I get to see her, the way that things are going at the moment. And finding and trying not to be dismissive of people's feelings. And I think that sometimes as coaches, we... And certainly for me as a coach, it has been challenging working with youngsters who have got so much going on at the moment with uncertainty and trying to stay positive whilst accepting that things are really, really hard. There's so much uncertainty around their sport, um, which is a huge part of their identity. You know, there's youngsters who have had two seasons of not being able to get into the international team, um, which is what. They, their trajectory has been for the last five years potentially and that might have been their only opportunity to do it um so it was really you know how do we keep looking for those positives and settle for amazing I've got to the start line amazing I've got my Olympic rings on my kit and I actually spoke to an athlete recently who um said to me if I get to the Olympics I'm just going to be so happy um and it was really nice to hear <laughs> Because th them saying that is was I don't don't care you know what team I'm in I don't care what crew I'm in I just want to be there on the start line at the Olympics and potentially that could change you know for Paris that might change because you've you've met goal one which is get to the Olympics for the first time 
then that moves. It's like the the Catherine Granger story or, or even the Catherine Bishop story of, of, you know, how that goes with the Olympics and a silver medal is not a gold medal. But how can we make sure that we're, we're, we're finding that happiness and it helps us to be more productive, but equally we don't dismiss the, the negatives and, and the, 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 real, the real struggles without letting that encompass everything that we're doing. Because I think it's potentially, particularly at the moment, it's, it's interesting that some athletes have really thrived during lockdown and some have really, really struggled. And we need to, to, to accept that, that it's not all been sweetness and light, that home environments for a lot of people aren't pleasant places and actually they're escapers at the river or at the court or wherever, and they've not had that. Um, so how do we, we go, oh, you know, but it was lovely weather and you had a great time and, you know, you've had all that time off or equally people who've been furloughed. Oh, well, that must have been amazing. No, <laughs> plenty of people. I was one of them who was furloughed and I absolutely hated it. Um, so the, there's so much going on to, around that is to how do we encourage positivity without dismissing people's really valid um, challenges? I think that's that's you know what what my thoughts were on that really um, particularly at the moment in my very basic psychology <laughs> understanding I, I i think you're onto it though and in terms of just the questions we we need to be asking ourselves more often you know actually where does happiness come from i, I think that's pro it's just one of the most fundamental questions but do we get caught up in this kind of we're seeking it we we think that an external thing can can provide happiness it goes back to the conversation we just had around the medals the the gold medal will make me happy or winning will make me happy well there'll be a chemical feeling that that creates some positivity for sure but is that happiness I'm less and less convinced by that and and I think you know Rupert Spira did a fantastic don't tell me the score with Simon Mundy recently um some of alan watts's stuff even going back further than that and and you know good friend sam jarman would talk about this quite a lot that happiness is just a state it it will come and it will go and it's just a natural that but you can't think yourself into happiness and this is this is something i've really struggled with for ages of trying to and you know you you can't actually create it so maybe the way to get there is to remove stuff because this is where my thinking has now got to that I need to remove things like pressure or confidence because I think we're very good at creating lots of systems and processes and we add 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 and then suddenly we go oh well why why hasn't that worked well we'll tinker and we'll come up with something new and maybe if we just strip more of that away we get to a place where we're dealing with less so we're more connected to what state we're in and we're far more comfortable of just kind of managing that state of flow and switching between the two and and understanding that thoughts aren't inherently good and bad we, we have a choice around how we interpret them and and this type of thing and and i as you say you can only ever deal with your own experiences but i do wonder if that's the shift we now start to see a little bit more of that more people kind of you know i guess mindfulness has become a really big thing but i think that's a really positive shift and not in a gimmicky i'm going to sell you a way to be mindful but just self-awareness of your mindfulness that you can't control what your brain yes i can create thoughts but i can't i can't stop thinking like i can't turn my brain off so how do we manage that how do we interpret those thoughts and there's if i'm honest there's not really a question in there but i i just wonder do do we need to okay i will phrase a question do we need to spend more time perhaps as coaches or even as athletes thinking about those bigger questions 
to give us a little bit more perspective and a bit more balance rather than, well, what is my next, I don't know, psych session look like, or what does my next training plan look like? Maybe we just need to be a little more conscious of where we are in, in the universe almost. Caitlin, jump on in. You've stopped me rambling. Thank you. No, that's just a really interesting point for me hearing the word happiness and sport in the same sentence. Cause I'm just thinking about my own experience an issue that I've had or I do have still is, and maybe some other athletes or maybe some other coaches experience this, is that I have or had this fear of becoming too happy. Because I felt if I became too happy, I would become complacent. And then I'd become complacent and then I wouldn't be striving for that perfection, for that, you know, that perfect performance, that perfect grade. And now that I think about it, I never thought about how do I incorporate my happiness into my sport instead of, well, if I do well in my sport, then I will be happy. Is my happiness depends on my sport. And instead of saying, despite how I perform or what the outcome is, I, I want to be happy. And that's not sport dependent. So when we talk about athlete well-being or coach in well-being, I think that's a conversation we need to consider. Is I think it's quite easy to attach your happiness to your sport, whether you're a coach performance director or an athlete and when things are not going well in your sport and your happiness depends on that that's a very dangerous situation to get in if, if that's the way you have set things up so I definitely think that's an important conversation and consider consideration to have yeah I, I love that it's a whole new conversation that isn't that almost doesn't fall into a kind of high performance environment in a way you've got the program we've got the sort of physiology side going psychology has often become very narrow to performance goals so psychology is in order to help you deliver your best performance and win psychology isn't always about exploring why you're here your purpose what makes you happy now I think you know the, the best psychologists find a way to bring that in but I, I know the cases where performance directors are sort of they don't want that they're like no you you only come in as a psychologist to talk to them about making sure they deliver on the day that's your job so we kind of narrow these things down and we leave this huge gap almost which is the essence of who we are our identity our values the things that are important to us what you know yeah why why we're here so I think there's there is bizarrely this space at a time when we have more experts than ever before in sports we've got the biomechanics specialists and the nutritionists we've got all of these wonderful kind of experts and yet they've all kind of got such a narrow area that we sort of don't look at the whole and we don't sort of look at the the person underneath it so it's strange that we've kind of you know got, got more complicated in how we approach it and yet we've left this huge gap that also somehow is um, it's kind of left out of the macho narratives and so therefore it becomes something that's weak. If it's not about being strong and winning, then it's weak and it gets kind of dismissed and so you can't be seen as somebody who sticks up for it because that means you're a loser too and then that gets rid of you, it gets you out of the picture. So this, you know, I find this, this language, I've become really kind of aware of the language that people use and sometimes they'll start to, to kind of buy into what we're saying but the language doesn't follow language is still what's the results where have you come what do you want to get out of this is winning you know nothing's good enough apart from a win is it so we can have this conversation and yet that language still lives on because it's like well we didn't actually want to unpick that did we and and we do we have to get right in there at the heart of what does winning actually mean and define it way beyond just coming first 
because it could be so much more. And I, I mean, I love that Rupert Spiral conversation you mentioned with Simon Monday, where he was sort of saying that, you know, if you watch the, the beauty of, a, a, you know, Federer and, and full flow, it, it's not whether he wins the tournament or not. It's those moments where he responds in a kind of semi-instinctive way that he's open to creating a new shot in a way that a particular angle that almost no one has ever done before. That's the beauty of the sport. That's actually moving it forward, pushing the boundaries of what's possible for him and the competition he's in. I mean, that's that's success, isn't it? That's a moment that's exciting, not at the end of the at the end of the game, just tallying up, you know, who got the most points kind of thing. I mean, you know, I always think those kind of Nadal Federer matches, it goes beyond just who's won because they are using each other to get to new heights. Um, not to kind of nobody's nobody's a loser you can't look at those incredible athletes as that well actually yeah you're you're, you know fed or yeah a bit of a loser really because on a slam for a couple of years I mean that's just ridiculous because he has been such an incredible athlete in so many ways and of course along the way he's won a lot too because that's part of this broader approach I think he's such a role model for some of you know, yeah, seeing the beauty of the sport in the whole and not just about what happens, you know, in the last 30 seconds when you tot up who's got more points. And I'm just thinking as you're talking then, I wonder if a team will ever employ a philosopher as the next person. As you say, it, you know, it, it's such an untapped space, but I, I also wonder whether we as coaches or performance directors or whatever it might be, we quite like definitive answers we quite like things to fit in very neat boxes and with very straight lines and very predetermined and good luck getting an answer out of a philosopher do you know what I mean and as you say the the, the best sports psychs I guess are and I can think of a couple that I've, I've had on the show that, that talk about this type of stuff and they are brilliant at it but actually what's the what's the next step beyond that who who could you get more value from in an area that actually could make the biggest difference yeah, and, and I appreciate marginal gains is, is a pretty tainted philosophy now, but, but there's something in it. But actually, you're talking super gains. If you start going into your essence of, of humanity and all this type of stuff, like if you have that kind of perspective and that self-awareness, like that's, that's probably going to be better than any sort of shot, you know, legal or illegal shot in the arm that you can get. Like, I think that could be an absolute game changer, but I wonder who's going to be brave enough to, to take that on and, uh, and try it. Well, we probably need someone to. And, and I guess, you know, maybe Federer almost is doing that to some extent. Um, he's just maybe not conscious about it. I mean, I think, you know, philosopher, sociologist as well, because actually it's that interaction piece. It's the role of sport in society that I think we need to consider, because what are the messages we're sending out to kids, to spectators, to schools, to businesses who copy sport? You know, so so there's that bigger kind of society angle as well. But what we really want is not another expert coming in. We actually need everyone to be philosophers. We need to create that space where when you start on your sporting journey, whether you're a coach or an athlete, as the two sort of principal people involved, uh, you know, all along the way, really, they need to understand and have that sense of the, the philosophical perspective to why they do what they do and, and the why of sport, the meaning of sport, the bigger term piece, because, do you know, if people will forget what they win or don't win. But actually that bigger meaning, the, the people they reach, the connections that they have, people whose lives are changed because they're involved in your sporting journey in some way. That's the bit that lasts. And that's what we seem to have missed. That The medals kind of, you, you sort of forget, you don't carry them around. 
but you carry around the experiences, the stories, the connections. Um, and, you know, that there's that sort of rebalancing. But actually, we want to bring philosophy into the athletes' lives and the coaches' lives. And I, I think going back to something you said, Phil, is, is that COVID in particular has helped us to simplify life a little bit, I think, as coaches and, and athletes. is It's taken away competition for a long time and helped people to refocus. And um, certainly that, that bigger picture... I spoke to a coach recently and said, oh, what are you most looking forward to? It looks like Henley's going to happen. It looks like Henley women's, you know, Nat schools. And he said, I'm just looking forward to being on the river in the sunshine because I missed last summer. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to athletes having their first summer in the sunshine and just seeing how special it is and seeing that that winter training is worth it for those moments. And having those times in a minibus together where you can put the Disney show tunes on and sing along and the boys are doing it as well. And and I remember I, the last event I went to before lockdown, um, it was a good two and a half hour drive. And it was the first time some of my athletes had, had competed. And we did. We put on the really cheesy tunes on the way home and they were singing really loud. And it was at half 11, I think, when we got back. Um, and I turned around to them and I said, these are the moments that you will remember. I said, I know that a lot of you have got medals today and that's great, but you've all raced brilliantly in horrible conditions. But just seeing all of you smiling right now is so special so please treasure these moments and funnily enough that was the last time we got to do it which was <laughs> over 12 months ago now um but yeah I think that mindfulness potentially we're calling it um there's there's a lot of athletes that I've seen on on social media saying oh it's, I went for a really lovely walk today and I saw a kingfisher or you know I heard a woodpecker in the woods or I've done some gardening and I've been growing plants and I think people have learned to just have a bit of a simpler life. And yes, the pubs are reopening and people want to go out and, and socialise. But I think people have, have found joy in, in quite simple things as well. And, and hopefully that will continue. And it's been a bit of a reset button. Um, and and it's still being able to produce those amazing performances as well. And I think that is, that's, that, that's the key. It's that recognition that it doesn't have to be frantic and it doesn't have to be doom gloom serious serious to, to actually succeed um and, and that's hope what i'm hoping is putting on that lens on it isn't it that positive lens is trying to find those positives out of what's been a really horrendous situation for an awful lot of people i think it's a real challenge i'm kind of going through this at the moment so the um i coach the oxford uni women's rugby side and so we've got the varsity's been kind of rescheduled for july so we've now got pretty much an 11 week window and, and varsity for Oxford and Cambridge is huge and first season in and it's obviously been a hugely disrupted season and I'm kind of going well it's great like it, it will be a phenomenal experience win or lose but actually what how well do I need to know the players to plan the next 11 weeks that they don't go my identity or my self-worth or my experience at Oxford is defined by 80 minutes off the back of a 14 month break where they played no rugby. And, I, and I'm kind of in that position where I'm going, you know, we want to create social connection. We want to create experience, but the real challenge is I probably don't know them well enough to be able to say who who's at risk almost who, who, who looks at varsity as the absolute be all and end all. And what is very interesting is some of the, the IDP conversations and just the, the online conversations I've had, some of them are very open with, varsity is not as big a deal for me as it is some people and I, I just find that honesty from those fascinating 
but I also wonder about the ones that haven't told me, are they the ones that find Varsity a bigger deal, but they don't want to start bringing it up and they don't want to start mentioning it now because it just takes on a life of its own. And it's, yeah, it'll be a fascinating experience as a, as a one-off to try and kind of balance this because I'd just be going, look, how much, again, it's a coin toss. How much control do we have over what happens in that 80 minutes? How much control do we have in what happens up to that? Yeah, probably quite a lot. But let's make this a brilliant experience because, you know, go back to, I don't know if you guys would have watched that, but even the 97 Lions kind of living with the Lions behind the scenes, there's a lot of conversations in there around there's 20 years, 30 years down the line, you bump into people and there's just a look and it's a nod and it's a, we had a, we had an experience together. You don't really care what happened in the game. No one really remembers a varsity from 30, 40, 50 years ago. But I bet you if they walk into the pub and bump into each other, they'll be telling the same stories and that type of thing. And it's, I guess that's the challenge for me as a coach or, or everybody as coaches. How do we just create that? How, without planning it, how do, cre- how do we create an opportunity for that experience to happen? Um, because I, I don't think you, you, know, you can't script it. It's not a movie. It would be nice if it was. But um, yeah. Definitely interesting. Definitely a really interesting space, I think, for a lot of people to to reintegrate everybody now we're coming back from COVID into whatever kind of sport or environment they're going to be in. Um, great stuff. Go on, Caitlin, jump in. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's the million-dollar question, is how do you do that? How do you create that space for those athletes to learn um, that it's all, not all just about performance? Because I think there will always be some athletes who – despite the space you create for them in the environment, they will be heavily performance driven. And that probably has to do with the 15 years before you knew them. And so if they've always grown up in an environment and all their previous coaches and the relationships, even how things are at home, and that's their first 15, 20, 25 years of life. And now you have them as an athlete and you want to help them see themselves more as just um, Kate, the volleyball player. And now Kate is a person who plays volleyball. How do you change that mindset when they've had it for 20, 20 years? How, how do we do that? I, I don't know. I guess that's the question we have to ask ourselves because everybody shows up with their own baggage and their own experiences. And yeah, I guess that's really not a question. I was really hoping you had an answer for me. You know, I threw it out there and no. Uh, if anyone does that's listening, answers on a postcard, you know, I will pay pay a sizable fee. Um, it's a great question though, isn't it? And I guess maybe that's why we do what we do because we we love that exploration. Yeah, great stuff. Cool. Uh, I think we'll round that one up there and Caitlin, we will come to you. So what are you going to talk to us about? Yes, so for this podcast, I chose to speak about um, a book written by um, Callum... Callum Cronin and Kathleen Armour called Care and Sport Coaching. And it's actually a book that um, my supervisor, um, Professor uh, Sophia Jowett, um, suggested to me as I was doing my literature review. I came into my PhD, I would admit this wholeheartedly, it was all about the athlete. And how do I create research that supports the athlete and is athlete focused? And I wasn't considering the coach aspect of it. I was considering there's a coach athlete relationship, but I was focusing on just one side of the relationship. And I've had great supervision from Sophia and Daniel. And through these conversations, 
I realized this is a very bi-directional relationship. What the coach does affects the athlete. What the athlete does affects the coach. And she gave me this book and it, it was, it was really great for me to read. It was really easy for me to read. Um, easy read, great, um, well-written. As I was doing my literature review, it's very easy to come across articles of coaches mistreating athletes, coaches um, engaging in unethical behavior, um, all sorts of scandals. And this book was a good reminder that there are a lot of caring coaches out there that will do anything and everything. And they're constantly learning. They're going on podcasts. They're listening to podcasts. They're doing whatever they can to be a caring coach for their athletes. And what stood out to me was the concept of care, not just duty of duty to care or safeguarding those buzzwords we all like to throw around, but what does care look like in sport coaching? And it's more than just don't harm the athlete or don't harm the child or don't harm the person. It's more than that. It's developing that relationship, um, that psychological safety, that, that dialogue, and that it's a two-way street that the athletes can reciprocate that by saying, thank you, or I appreciate that, or thank you, coach. And as I was reading through it, there's um, a couple case studies. And I think it's the last case study in the book with um, a coach named David. And it's called The Cost of Caring. And it really hit me on, as my time as an athlete, I never took a step back and went, whoa. What is the emotional toll or the emotional work or labor that my coach is doing to support 16 girls, 15 girls, when there's only two coaches? What is she doing um, to support us? And, and, you know, it's the story of burnout, of emotional labor and the cost of it. And it got me thinking of we do ask these coaches to care for athletes and do X, Y, Z. And the big thing right now is being athlete centered. And through conversations with Sophia and Daniel, we started um, talking about, and this is something that Sophia has proposed um, and we've written about in our upcoming book chapter, is it being coach athlete centered? Can we really be truly athlete centered if we're leaving out coaches? Because how coaches behave and the interactions and the relationships that they have with their athletes affect athletes' performance and well-being. So if we truly want to be athlete-centered, we need to make sure we keep bringing those conversations about coaches into that um, conversation and the research. And I guess ultimately is how do we care for caring coaches? They're putting in all this emotional labor and this emotional work. How do we care for them in a way and support them in a way that they can continue on to care without eventually getting burnt out? Because we want those caring coaches to stay in sport and to be the mentors and the coach developers and the leaders and the examples. And we should be empowering them to to put themselves in those spaces, to set themselves up as an example of what caring coaching is and what it can lead to. But we need to make sure that we remember coaches as we get really into this athlete-centered um, movement that we have, which is absolutely great. But s- coaches play an important role in athlete well-being and, imp- and performance. They are in such a great position to have a positive impact on an athlete, but they're also in a position to do harm to an athlete. 
So how do we support them to be caring coaches? Is it, you know, through education, formal support, informal support? You know, we tell coaches, you need to have a work-life balance. Well, that's easy to tell a coach, but if they get a text from a player or an athlete at 10 p.m. at night because they're in a crisis, work-life balance? Or are they are they supposed to pick up the phone and deal with that situation? You know, it, it's kind of it's easy to say, well, coaches need to take care of them and themselves, and they need to have self-care and work work-life balance. But but athletes are 24/7; they're humans. They exist 24/7 all the time. And if you're a caring coach and you've developed that strong relationship, you now are opening yourself up to potentially not having a work-life balance because athletes are coming to you. So I guess it's having that conversation of supporting coaches to have a high level of well-being so they can have the capacity to do the same for athletes. It's actually kind of bringing that, that concept of well-being in front and center it seems to be for me a really kind of key thing coming out there about um you know athlete well-being and and coach well-being because actually we probably want to avoid the 10 p.m crisis in the first place don't we if we're in the 10 p.m crisis we're in a sort of 24 7 life's on the edge and we're we're, you know we're on the stage you know on on the edge of a sort of mental breakdown um and so you know that there's a you know, putting all of the, the well-being stuff rather than on the end when there's a problem, you know, actually kind of getting into much more of a, a let, let set out to care rather than adding it in on the end. You know, it's like our approach to health, isn't it? Let's let's prevent illness rather than, you know, we actually have a national sickness service, don't we? Because you only really go if you're ill. And so that's a bit of how we learn to live in society. And, and that's something we need to kind of challenge here, I think. So we we almost shift all of these parameters, don't we? So we start with well-being. We don't start with, okay, let's train really, really hard and win. And, oh gosh, we've gone a bit awry and we'll, we'll shove in a bit of welfare now. Um, we actually start from that point. And I think that would that would feel quite radical, but it's actually quite logical from a, both a performance and a, and a human perspective. I, I, yeah. Go on, go on, Rachel. Yeah, it, it, it really rings true with me, um, Caitlin, that um, I, I was a volunteer coach for 20 years um, and was coaching at one point probably 20 hours a week along with a full-time job and doing a master's at the same time. I'm not quite sure how I managed to do that, but the, the fallout was <laughs> there was a bit of burnout at the end of the season. Um, but it was really interesting for me to go into a paid role that I felt that I didn't have nearly as much pushback because I'm being paid to do this job. So I almost need to take the flack that I'm getting from parents or even from athletes. And whereas as a volunteer, I've never ever used the excuse in inverted commas of I'm just a volunteer because as a coach, you have a responsibility and you need to do your job well, regardless of whether you're being paid to do it or not. But I felt there was more respect and care for me from athletes and parents because I was giving up my time for free compared to when I was being paid to do it um and and that was uh, don't get me wrong there were challenges when I was a volunteer um but what was really interesting was um as part of my level four qualification was I did some 360 feedback from athletes and parents on a kind of six monthly basis and they they said to me you need to take a break. You need to take the odd weekend off. You, you're giving us too much of your time. And that almost swagged to me, A, they care about me. And B, 
they can survive without me the odd weekend. I can hand it over to to another coach to look after them. And and maybe I, I I guess it potentially comes from my athlete background and that obsessive athlete background came into my I need to give it my all. I need to be there and be there before they arrive and and stay for an hour after they've left. Um, but it, it really it ended up in a burnout, absolutely. And and the, the biggest sort of upset was that I did have sessions where I just wasn't enjoying it because I knew I wasn't being a good coach. I wasn't giving them what they needed because I was exhausted or I was fed up with it all. Or I just there was never a time I didn't want to be there, but it was a grind. And it is sometimes, but when you're reflecting as a coach and you're going I'm not doing a good job right now and I know that I'm having to put on an act to 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 try and be a good coach today (laughs) I'm putting a face on it and that's exhausting and when you're when you're giving up your time to do that as well it becomes even more exhausting and you go home and you're like right okay and then you get the 10 p.m call (laughs) of of, why have I not been selected for a crew (laughs) um so there's, there's all those things that come with it. But I think that there are so many coaches that I have spoken to in the last probably two, three years as a mentor who have said to me, I'm just not enjoying coaching anymore. I, I, I've loved it for so many years, but I'm exhausted and I, I can't carry on the way that I'm doing things. And I think that, as I say, it potentially comes from that mentality that the athletes have, that coaches have it as well because they want to succeed and whatever that success needs to be, but they, they care so much that they're being a parent to 50 kids, you know, <laughs> and, and you can't take on all that emotional responsibility because you need to share it out because otherwise you do just break down. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point because uh, yeah, we definitely need to care for our athletes, but who's caring for our coaches and, and those networks that we have, like I was on a network call last night are, are really those opportune moments but there's so many coaches working in isolation that they just don't have that and and then they drop out and then we lose really good people who care about our athletes <laughs> that's what we need yeah definitely is how do we care for the coaches that are going above and beyond so they do stay in sport and so they can continue to be that positive role model and as you're talking um it made me think of this um concept that was introduced in the book it's by Kathleen Lynch, and it's a concept of the care ceiling. And I would love to get um, Rachel and Cass your experience because um, in the book it's mentioned that women tend to hit the care ceiling a lot quicker than men. And the concept behind it is um, caring skills are underappreciated in connection with senior roles and the intense time demands of caring, um, you know, for your family, personal life, prohibit individuals whose lives are careful from succeeding in new manager roles and cultures. And so in in thinking about this care ceiling, I'm curious if if anyone on this call has experienced that or felt like because I care so much, I cannot go to a more senior role because it would require me to be not as caring, more cold, more callous, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I certainly see that in the business world. It's a debate that's being had at the moment and it's starting to shift and the pandemic has actually given people permission to care. You know, people have sort of said to me, oh, our meetings have really changed. We start off, we ask people how they are and and we really mean it. And I literally heard that conversation multiple times. And you think, well, 
So what before you, you never asked and you didn't mean it if you did. Wow, how do we get to a place where in the workplace that's what was happening? And the challenge now, of course, is how do we carry this on and not go, oh, pandemic's over, fine, okay, right, we, we, won't, we won't mention the well-being stuff, we'll just get back to work. I mean, in my own experience, in my kind of non-sporting life as a diplomat, for part of it, I worked in, um, in the war zone in Iraq, and it was frightening. And we had incoming mortars and rockets, we were on a military base. But we really looked after each other. And it was almost like we had permission to, because of course you'd be crazy not to be slightly scared. You are in a war zone. You are, you've got sirens going off. You're wearing body armor. This is fundamentally not safe. And therefore we would really look after each other. And we would check in at the end of the day. We checked in every time we had sort of incoming stuff come in. We had radios. We were always checking up on each other really proactively. And, and it was okay to say if you weren't feeling okay that day or you're feeling a bit shaken or you're a bit close to something here. And then when I went back to London and I was working in Whitehall, never had that conversation again. Because there's no rockets, there's no mortars going off. So why would we want to look out for each other? Uh, and of course, though, that's crazy because there are huge stressful things that happen in, our, in everyday work life, whether we work in a war zone or not. But it's almost like if it's not really difficult stuff, then you don't want to say have understood why we do that um, and you know so some of those extreme situations like the pandemic has enabled us to and, and even the strong people that's been okay to do that and it's been okay to struggle because all of us have struggled at some point um, and the challenge is for us to keep that conversation going that there is much more being written about kindness in leadership um, typically feminine traits, as it were, that not just women do, but they are seen as feminine, attributed to typically to, to females of empathy um, and yeah, kindness and listening. All of these things are talked about, you know, but in vast amounts in all of the research now around what makes for good teams. Psychological safety is a huge topic in organisations. Many don't have it, and it's seen as being a critical factor to high-performing teams. So the topic is is kind of out there, but we're still sort of a bit tentative. And actually this is somewhere where I think sport is a little bit behind the curve, arguably, um, because there can be that sense, you know, I mean, it, there's such a kind of macho piece about being the first coach there and the last coach there. And, and I've often spent time, um, you know, in some of my volunteer roles to sort of managing coaches in university settings, you know, saying, you know, you, you've got too much on, you're clearly like, there's too much don't go today, have a morning off, the, the girls will be fine, the rowers will be fine, they know what to do, tell them what they need to do, and then get them to report back on how they've done, they'll actually learn more by doing that, but there's this fear of not being there, or there's a fear of somebody else coaching them, and they might go slower, or somebody else coaching them, they might go faster, and then that will mean you're not a good coach, so we don't have a sharing culture often, I think, where also coaches sort of work in isolation, so I think there's a huge gain, and you know, a marginal gain, if you like, a, a, a kind of advantage to be had by much more peer coaching sharing coaching and that would also enable I think more female coaches because at the moment the hours are prohibitive they're prohibitive for many men I mean I know a lot of coaches at top level they don't see the children for huge amounts of time uh, because they're away on training camps all the time and you have to go to them all there's no flexibility that's madness you know, clearly you can't stay fresh all of the time. It would be useful to have other perspectives. Like why can't you have a part-time coach? I mean, in, in, in rowing, that's basically unheard of at the top level um, to, to be in a, a kind of a key role. But what if someone's got something valuable to add? 
um, you know, I, I find that lack of flexibility there is really challenging and it traps coaches then into this sort of slightly macho world that isn't so caring. And, and thinking of what uh, Kath has just said and also a question that I had at the end of reading this book and, you know, it might be quite a radical question, but we often talk about how can coaches care for athletes or how can we care for coaches as researchers, organizations, or how can peer coaches help um, other coaches. But do you, in your opinion, any of you, can athletes play a role in caring for their coach? Is there anything that we should be asking athletes to do to support their coaches? I think there's a real reward in, in athletes that show some appreciation. You never expect it as a coach. Um, uh, and when it happens, it's, it's really, you know, that's reward in itself. So I remember there was, there's the one group of athletes, quite a relatively large group of athletes and, and without fail, they would all say thank you when they left. And it almost, you know, it's like the, the kind of going off the bus thing at the end of a trip, but, and, or, or you'd get a card from them because they'd, you'd had a chat with them and they'd say, you know, I, I really appreciate that, that that conversation and thanks for giving me your time or you don't expect it and I think you can't rely on it as a coach um but I think there's a care and certainly working with junior athletes there's a role for parents to play in in caring for, for the coaches as well um in yes being demanding and, and athletes are demanding because it, it, getting to the top is quite a sort of selfish business in some ways um I remember Tony Milicello said saying um you know, if, if your mother's, if your wife's died, that's, you know, that's your problem. But if your athlete's goldfish has died, you need to really worry about them and their goldfish. Um, and it kind of, to put things in perspective, but equally, one of the other things was, um, if I give you a piece of my time, don't make me regret it. Um, this is a piece of my life I'm giving to you, whether I'm being paid or not, this is my energy that you're getting for me. And, and, um, it's kind of those messages of about just respect and it's respecting the time that coaches will generally not work to the hours that they're employed to work. They'll work way above them. And certainly at the moment with, with bubbles and, and the way things are working, I know coaches are working extraordinary hours to make things work for their athletes because they care and not just because they care about them winning, but because they know how much it means for their athletes to be able to get back to sport and they're, they're putting in so, so many hours at the moment. And it's, um, I think that one of the messages that I heard from, it was a Cox actually, who said um, something along the lines of, if, if, if you, you'll get the best out of me if you give me your best. Um, and that means just give me your attention. Just sometimes listen to me when I'm talking. But there's general sort of manners <laughs> that you get with youngsters, particularly sometimes. Um, or just appreciate that, you know, I've paid out of my own pocket to get you all a Cadbury's cream egg for Easter. Just, just appreciate that a little bit. <laughs> um, and that those, it's little things. You don't expect grand gestures at all. But I think that there is a place for athletes to look after their coaches because without their coaches, that you know, they're going to fall flat. They're not going to be able to get out a lot of the time, particularly the younger ones. Um, and if you don't look out for them, then they're not. You're not going to get the best out of them. Um, how that works and I think particularly younger athletes it's difficult for them to appreciate that sometimes because 
they're very wrapped up in their own worlds, particularly at the moment. And that's where that care ceiling comes in. And I know that having had conversations with athletes and knowing what a rough time some of them are really going through mentally at the moment, you take that on board as as a coach and you become very protective. And I know that some coaches can be quite protective because they don't want other coaches to get hold of their athletes. But equally, you can become very protective because you know the damage that somebody else coming in and saying the wrong thing could do. Um, So it's how can you sort of not let share those problems amongst others and to have that team coaching approach as well, really. Um, but there's, there's definitely a place and a, a position for, for, um, for athletes to be looking after coaches, but it, it's a wider team thing. I think as well, there's, there's a huge network of people, coaches working in isolation, particularly in smaller and smaller club environments really need to, we need to make sure that they're having support, whatever that looks like. Uh, I think sort of at adult level, um, once athletes are kind of over 18 it's, it's it is a little bit more complex than the juniors but at adult level why why couldn't they why shouldn't they if it's a two-way relationship and and that's part that then talks to this whole question about whether you are having conversations peer-to-peer and actually a lot of my experience I, I, I kind of wasn't having a conversation you know, I, I wouldn't dream of kind of asking uh, a caring question about my coach because you know it just wasn't set up like that you know it's a power relationship they're selecting um, and, and, you know, you need to be careful what you're showing uh, and you're into this very unsafe environment, actually, um, that you're managing. And, and so for me, it, you know, you absolutely could, you could and, and, and should care for your coach, but you have to have set that whole conversation up from the start that you are equal peers. And that, of course, is, is challenging when you've got a coach who's going to select the crew that goes to the Olympics. I think there's something about being a little bit brave as an athlete there as well, in terms of if the coach is saying, you know, if you've got any problems, you can always speak to me. There's an open door. So at some point you probably got to just step through that a little bit. Like you don't need to go and tell them your deepest, darkest fears, but you can probably just have a bit of a conversation that says, I'm willing to be open with you because you'll probably get something back. And I think there's definitely that starts that cycle. It's, it's probably never going to be on, the the athlete to pick up the the well-being of the coach but if the coach is opening the door just just be brave enough to step through it and and then that'll start to be I think that's just kind of the first step on that that kind of journey to becoming a peer-to-peer relationship as as Cass said I think it's really difficult the power dynamic um how you overcome that but I but I actually yeah my mind jumped back to starting with the the Oxford girls and just giving them feedback in the session and they genuinely just trying to go, Oh, you know, I I really appreciate that. Thank you. And I'm just looking at them like thanking me in the middle of a session. Like this is unheard of. Like, and because they're so lovely and they, they genuinely appreciate even that 30 seconds of time you spent talking to them about their pass or their step or whatever it is. And it, and you're just kind of going, wow, like this is, yeah, that's a real buzz that they've taken that on and they, they are thankful for that information. So yeah, I, I guess there's kind of those, those little bits. I don't think you need to do it all the time. Like that, that's just clearly the person they are and, and they're really nice and, and they want to say thank you. But I, I don't think you have to try and kind of set out to create that, but I guess it's just that recognition of, yeah, if, if, if the coach is offering you an opportunity, then, then take it 
um, or, or explain why you can't. And I, I, that's, that's, I guess, my one of my biggest frustrations as a coach. You're kind of saying, oh, you know, I'll come and do an extra session with you or if you want to have a conversation about this or if you want to go through some video or something like this. And they're kind of like, meh, you know, just meh, not, not that bothered. And you're kind of like, oh, right, okay. Like, just either say that don't don't offer like I'm, I'm not in a place where this is useful and you can kind of park it because if you would think and I the irony is you never see this as a player until you're a coach and I, I do think we probably need to get players doing way more coaching earlier just so they recognize this that actually if someone's offering you an opportunity they probably see something in you they probably are going, there is a reason I'm willing to invest more time and energy in you. Potentially, I'm prioritizing you ahead of other people, family, work, whatever it might be, because I think you can do more than maybe you believe you can do at the moment. And I think recognizing that as a player where you're going, oh, it's just the coach telling me I need to go and do another passing session or a kicking session, rather than hmm, that that's somebody that doesn't have to do that that is saying they'll give up their time and they'll give me their expertise. Maybe I, I should, maybe I should say yes. Um, and you, there's no pressure obviously, but I don't know. I just, I just sometimes feel like, Oh God, if somebody had said that to me at the time, I'd have definitely bitten their hand off. But now just, it just sometimes seems in a number of environments where people are just maybe a little bit more apathetic and just go, eh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not that fast. I'm not sure. Very interesting. Go on, Rachel, jump in. Yeah, it's something that we've talked about a lot in the past um, with uh, with UK coaching is the recognition and reward of coaching. And, and coaches aren't looking for rewards for the most part. Um, yes, depending on who they are, that they're not looking for that. They're not people who seek the limelight. The, the best coaches generally aren't people who are looking that they'll go and hide when their athletes on the podium and, you know, be cheering them and going, yeah, that's, you know, that's your that's your stage. I'm not on the stage with you. Um, uh, and they're, they're pleased for their athletes. They're not, they're not saying that's because of me. And, and I think that we've got a lot of humble coaches who, who don't recognize the power that they have, um, to, to really change lives in a, in a really positive way. Um, and how we reward coaches is, is so diverse because it depends on the individual. Um, some of them, it is a, even just a, a nod, <laughs> A recognition of thanks for coming out on, on a Saturday morning where it's minus three and you've gone through three sets of kit this morning I really appreciate it or here's a cup of tea <laughs> or you know anything really I think personally it's the little it's those little things that I find rewarding because it means that somebody's gone hang on a minute this person's gone out of their way this morning and really really pushed the boat out to coin a phrase <laughs> um or it's not even the bottles of wine or chocolate or whatever at Christmas or the cards that that's kind of, it's nice. And it's, you know, you keep those cards sometimes for the days you're going oh, but, but how we reward those coaches or how they find their own rewards, I think is, is quite an important question because if we, if we understand that about each individual, um, then they will find more satisfaction in their coaching. And, and it may be, around that flexibility and having a team around you and saying saying to somebody else at the club oh I'm going away for the weekend can you pick up my athletes or just just keep an eye on them this is what they're doing um and somebody going yeah sure um and having that and that that team around you or 
having somebody that's just going to be a listening ear when you've had a rough day. Um, and and I, the, I've had people that are invalu- invaluable in my life who who have listened and <laughs> not made comments really, but just gone, that sounds pretty rubbish. Yeah, anything I can do to help? And it's like, no, you've just listened and I've talked through and I've come up with my own solution and that's grand. <laughs> um, but my, you know, my personal philosophy is that really kindness is kind of the key to success um and it's it's not a weakness it's a real positive of mine um and longer term I think the older you get the more confident you become in your own coaching philosophy and and you've got to be quite brave to be able to do that and some of the research that I did was with female coaches and and their their self-efficacy and their their, their really strong coaching values is what put them into a successful position um and I think the younger coaches and, and the younger female coaches in particular who and male as well, um, although the research with male coaches has been quite challenging because it's been difficult to, to get people to engage in some of that research. Um, it, it's it really is recognizing that the the face of successful coaching is changing um, and it's not like you've said, Kat, that big masculine, traditional masculine stereotypical traits. Um, the big scary coach is going to come along, shout and make you go faster. It's actually somebody that cares is part of a, a transformational rather than, trans, rather than transactional relationship. Um, yes, there's always going to be a different a dynamic and a different imbalance of authority. And as you say, Kath, when push comes to shove, the coach is the one that makes the selection decisions. Um, and that's really difficult as well. Um, and that can be a really difficult time for an athlete who cares about their coach when they've not been selected and it's kind of well <laughs> you know where's where, where do I fit into this deal I, it's it's complex but um definitely we can we can find that that balance and understanding where coaches get their awards and if it's in medals then maybe they they need to work with a certain type of athlete but is that a healthy relationship I don't know I think there's some great questions in there. I am now really conscious of time because when we said at the beginning, you know, how long are we aiming for? And I was like, well, the last one was an hour and 40 and now we'll get nowhere near that. It's now an, an hour and 43. So um, I, I'm thinking we'll probably knock that on the head um, and we'll jump very quickly to your kind of suggestions or where you would kind of direct people or point people for some follow-up stuff potentially or just other good stuff that you've, uh, you've you know, looked at recently. So Kath, we'll come to you. What uh, What might you suggest for some other people? Um, so, I mean, I'm always kind of the, the last period being very connected with uh, this topic of athlete welfare and, you know, and the way we think and all of these aspects that kind of came into when I was writing my book, The Long Wind. So, um, you know, connected to that, I love the Simon Mundy um, podcasts that you mentioned. So I think, you know, the Rupert Spira one is really interesting, but I'd really recommend people listen to the Don't Tell Me the Score um, podcast to, to get a whole kind of range of different perspectives. Um, and a slightly kind of non-sport one, um, I read Adam Grant's Think Again, um, which is good about, you know, we talked about changing the lens, changing mindsets, changing the way we, the perspective we bring to things. And he's got some really kind of interesting research and stories that he tells through that. Fantastic. And where can people find your book? Uh, yeah, anywhere you would normally buy a book online, maybe even the bookshelves now, bookshelves now we can go into them. Um, and then more information about me at cathbishop.com. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, Rachel, what, uh, what are you suggesting? 
Um, I'd go and have a look at the TED talk that I mentioned. So the happiness advantage, uh, linking positive brains to performance. It does start off um, with the story about a baby unicorn. Stick with it. It's worth it. <laughs> um, and it's just, I, I just think it's a really interesting approach. And as I said, you know, the following on from that, that um, potentially it could be challenged, but that's what, what these pieces of research are there for. Um, uh, another um, podcast um, recommendation would be Dave Levine, uh, Sports Stories. I know some of you have spoken to him already. Uh, Dave's somebody that I've worked with in the past and is, and is somebody that I consider really has kindness and, and uh, at the, the heart of what he does. And he's got a really diverse group of people that he speaks to as well, um, which I think really helps with um, with his podcast and, and, and improving the culture of sport as well. So um Loads of people to follow on Twitter. If you, if you have a look at um, some of the people I have conversations with on Twitter, then um, you can sort of gauge some of the people. Tris May Gothling is doing an awful lot on athlete welfare at the moment. Um, he's definitely worth a follow. Um, I think you know him, Phil. So um, those are my recommendations at the moment. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. I, and if Tristan is brilliant and he's been on, I can't think off the top of my head what week it was, but people can go back and listen to him because that was a, that was a fascinating discussion as well. So um, great stuff. Caitlin, finish us off. What are you suggesting? All right. We'll definitely um, check out the book that we talked about earlier, the Karen sport coaching. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. And my suggestion, um, well, actually this is something to watch would be the first season of last chance. You, it's a documentary series about junior college sports. And the first one takes place in Eastern Mississippi, American football team. And I think it'd be great if people could just have a little look around what care and sport, sport coaching, you know, read some experts from the, or some bits from the book, or maybe just look up, you know, the definition of care. And then I would love for people to watch that first season and just see, you know, when a coach says, I really do care about my athletes. And then you look at some of the behavior um, that is happening and some of the relationships and the interactions that that coach is having with the athletes, I think is quite interesting to just um, look at. Um, I'll be a little bit self-promotional here. Um, also for Sophia, we have a book chapter coming out um, in the book. Oh, titled Ath Athletic Development, a Psychological Perspective Book by the Open University. We have a book chapter in there um, where we've laid out the coach-athlete-centered approach where the, it's neither coach, neither athlete, but they're both brought to the to center on how we start to approach things. And then lastly, um, I'm currently uh, doing a study right now on deselection and high-performance sport from the athlete perspective. So if there's any athletes out there that have had um, an experience with deselection and want to partake, um, give me a shout. Fantastic. Thank you. What I will do on that is um, we'll put your email in the blurb. Um, so if people want to get in touch, then they can, or if they've got contacts, then um, yeah, that would be great. And I, I appreciate you don't have a timeline on this stuff, but when, when are you thinking that will be kind of finished and released? Is there, is there a potential timeline or? Uh, well, I need to have it finished by the end of the year. We did get um, grant money from the International Olympic Committee um, Olympic Study Center. So obviously I'm on a bit of a timeline to provide a six month report and a year report. Um, ideally, we'd like to have data collection um, done by the summer, so June or July. Um, but or if anybody just wants to have a chat and just share their experiences from a non-research purposes, that's great for me as well to learn from a research um, stance. Amazing. Um, 
I, I've absolutely loved this. Thank you so much. It's just, it's one of my favorite topics. And as we said, it, we could probably go on for weeks about this, but it's been, uh, yeah, hugely insightful and some brilliant questions um, and hopefully a great listen for everyone that is, uh, that's tuning in. So um, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to round up the roundup. So we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions to genuinely a fascinating discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well.